Throughout Scripture, God regularly, consistently, diligently promises to protect us. Throughout Scripture, God makes promises that demonstrate and suggest and apply His watchfulness and His care. And what these promises tell us is that He is not an absentee landlord, that He's not a derelict father, that those who He calls His own, that those who He loves, He will pursue, He will be with. Emmanuel, God with us. This is the nature of our God. With that said, when our lives grow stormy, when our lives grow dark, what can be difficult for us is to reconcile the hurts that we're undergoing, to reconcile the, the difficulties and the pain and problems that we're facing against those promises. God has promised that he would be with us. God has promised that he would protect us. God has promised that he would love us. So when things go bad, what do we do? Well, we say, "Duh, God, you've said these things, and yet, in my reality, in the circumstances that I see around me, I feel very much alone. I feel very much subjected to the dangers of this, dangers of this world. If we're being honest, there are times when we have a lot of trouble reconciling two things. The knowledge that God is there and yet the reality of the dangers and problems we face. And when that happens, it can feel to us like God's promises remain just just outside, just outside our grasp, beyond that which we can cling to. God's promises feel like that which we cannot call our own at times. Or worse yet, Sometimes we think that those promises, they exist and they're true, but they apply to somebody else, someone holier. Someone who's been in church more often. Someone who's not failed in sin as we have. This is a frightful error. What a terrible thing to think that God has made promises, but they belong to somebody else and that you and I can't claim them. But these are the sort of uh, mental gymnastics that we engage in when we have trouble reconciling God's power and inclination and promise to help us with the reality of trouble. In his own life, King David, in his own life, King David had experienced all manner of difficulties, all manner of troubles. Uh, There's a laundry list. We can pick one. We can pick the death of his young son. Remember the death of his young son. He encountered a lot of pain. There's uh, probably not a greater pain than this. But here's the thing. David believed, even in the face of pain, even in the face of troubles and and trials. On the very day that King David's son died, it would have been understandable if he had railed against God and questioned God's love and provision. Certainly David must have been hurting a great deal in that hour. And yet David knew. God never promised that anyone wouldn't die. What God had promised is that death wasn't the end. David knew of a heavenly kingdom. David knew there was a place where death holds no power. And so after his child died, how did David respond? Do you recall the story? After he was told that his son had died, after he was told that his son had perished, David got up, he went and washed his hands, he sat down to dinner, and he ate. And you remember what his servants did? His servants asked, why? How can you do this? Your son has just passed, and you're acting like nothing happened. You wash your hands, you get ready, and you're having a meal. After receiving this news, do you remember what David clung to in the midst of that pain, in the midst of those circumstances? Do you remember what David said to his servants? David told the men. He says, even though, even though my son will never return yet to me, one day I will go to him. One day I will go to him. In the middle of the greatest hurt I think you can engage in, the death of a child, David clung to God's promise. And God's promise is that there would be reunited. 
Father and Son. Do you see the power that we have when we take God at His word? When we claim these promises as our own, it helps us to deal with a great deal of those things that would otherwise cripple us, that would otherwise flatten us. I would have lost heart unless I had believed. As David's words to us in this morning's text. Let's look at the fullness of our text now. What we're going to do is we're going to look at verses 7 and 8. I'm going to study the, these verses, and then we'll just work our way through the text. Okay, let me read verses 7 and 8 once again. Verse 7 says this. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. All right. Stopping there. In these verses, we see the words of a broken man. Words of a hurting man, a man who's looking for answers. Hear, O Lord, when I cry. Have mercy upon me. Answer me. We see a, a, a broken, a hurting man asking for God's aid, asking for God's help, asking just to know why. Why is this going on? Why is it, are these things taking place? And he does what he should. He throws these questions before the throne of God and he says, God, please answer me. And then in verse 8, the author reminds God, David reminds God, he says, God, I have diligently sought out your face. I'm not new to this prayer thing. I'm not new to worship. I worship you day and night. I seek out your face. I have lifted my eyes unto heaven, and yet I still don't understand. Why, O Lord? God, have mercy on me. Answer me. If David, if, if King David could feel that way, trust me, that legitimatizes our fears and our anxieties as well. At least in the sense that if David could experience that sort of, of, of trauma of the soul, you and I should not despair when we face similar trauma. In any case, David puts his petition before God. God he says, God, please help. Please answer me. And then in verses 9 and 10, we see him continue. Let's look at verses 9 and 10. Verse 9, do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You've been my help. Do not leave me or forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father, when my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. Okay, in verse 9, David continues what he's doing in verses 7 and 8. He's building on this case. He's saying, God, please help. Please help. And then he, he acknowledges just the worst thing imaginable. He, he acknowledges how terrible it would be if God were to turn his face from his beloved child. He acknowledges how miserable this would be. He, he acknowledges that such rejection would utterly undo him if God were to hide his face from him. You know, when things are going poorly for us, one of the worst things to, to think of is that God doesn't care. Or worse yet, God has turned his attention away. God is not focused on us. And again, we can do some measure of, 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 of self-flagellation. We can say, because I've been unworthy, because I sinned yesterday, because I did something terrible last week, last month, or 20 years back, because of what I have done, he won't forgive me now. And he's not that attentive when I pray. He doesn't care that much because he still holds this sin against me. 
We can do that to ourselves, but that is not the testament of Scripture. David describes a scenario by which God had turned his back on him, and he despairs of even considering it. However, in the same breath, in verse 10, he also declares, in essence, that such a thing would never happen. He says, even if my father and my mother forsake me, I know this, God will not. Throughout the Psalms, we, we see testament to this idea that God has been faithful even when we are faithless. David knows this. He has good theology even when he's crying out, even when he's in pain, even when he's asking why. It doesn't temper his understanding that God is in charge and that God is good and that God loves him. And we see all that immersed in these verses, and we'll see it even more in the verses, in the verses yet to come. This morning, you and I, we may be staring in our own lives. We may be staring down the barrel of a particular crisis, of a particular problem. With that said, the fact that we're facing a crisis does not mean that God is angry at us, that he doesn't like us, or that he hates us, and he's putting something in our path to trip us up or to, or to harshly rebuke us. When we face obstacles, and some of our obstacles are very significant, it doesn't mean that he's unloving or inattentive. It doesn't mean that he's abandoned us. If you... Look at the stories of Moses, of Elijah, of Paul, of David. Life happens. We live in a fallen world, and the byproduct of living in a fallen world is fallen things occur. Sin happens. Sin occurs. Both sin of our own volition and sin just of the world around us. We are immersed in a sinful, in, in a sinful world, and that has consequences. It means that life does not always go well. And this was true for David, for Paul, for Moses, for Elijah. And it's true for you and I as well. With that said, God's promise is this. He doesn't say that you'll never face any obstacle. He doesn't say that life will never go hard. He doesn't say there won't be earthquakes and famines and pestilence and cancers and all manner of these things. What he says is that when these things occur, you and I are not alone. He says, I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. David acknowledges that in verse 10. Okay, let's build on that point by looking at verses 11 through 13. Verse 11, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path. I bet David's heart cried out for a smooth path. I'll bet you and I, our hearts cry out for a smooth path. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me. And such as breathe out violence. I would have lost heart unless. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. In verses 11 and 12, David is describing what you might say the landscape of his day-to-day life. He's describing the landscape. What he says as he describes the landscape is he says, this is a, a, a rocky path and I desire a smooth one. In David's eyes, around every rock, around every corner, were those who sought to kill him. They're breathing out violence, violence uh, of intent to sully his character, violence that ultimately, uh, in their eyes, would desire in the death of, of his body. He had enemies and adversaries by the dozen. 
And because of that, David needed God to lead him in a smooth path. He knew he was not capable of of making his own uh, choices independent of God. So he doesn't even say that. He doesn't say, God, please validate my decisions after I have made them. How often do our prayers look like that? How often do we say, God, please bless the choice I made yesterday? He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, God, please validate the choices I already made. Instead, he says, lead me. Lead me. And as you lead me, lead me in a smooth path. I have had my fill of enemies and adversaries and false witnesses. And I would have lost heart. But I believed. What is the landscape of your day-to-day life? We know David faced Goliath and the Philistines. I trust Goliath and the Philistines are not present in your own life. However, you undoubtedly have obstacles. You undoubtedly have troubles and difficulties that might feel like Goliath. Health issues can, can, can be that and can do that. Relationship issues. Sometimes I can feel like there's no worse pain. What are our Goliaths? What's the landscape of our day-to-day life? I'm sure there's all manner of challenges in it, all manner of sicknesses, difficulties, obstacles. And the very existence of those obstacles can cause us to ask God, why? God, you are in charge. God, you're in control. God, you're all-powerful. Why is this, why is this obstacle, whatever it is, in my path? In verse 13, David empathizes with you and I who ask these questions. Because he asks the same thing. He empathizes with our emotions. He even empathizes with our despair when he says that guess what? Even he, even David, even a man after God's own heart, even King David, he says, even I would have lost heart as well. Unless, and that's one of the greatest words in this passage, this entire psalm. Unless. I would have lost heart. Unless. This suggests a transition. I would have lost heart unless I had believed. Now that begs the question. Believed what? It's one thing to believe. When, when in our family, we underwent uh, cancer of my youngest daughter a number of years back. We stayed at the Ronald McDonald house in the Denver area. We were driving up and down from, uh, from northeast Wyoming, which is a long drive to visit our oncologist. So frequently, when we came down to Denver, we would stay in the Ronald McDonald house. Now, the Ronald McDonald house was wonderful. It was a great place to stay, wonderful amenity. We were very grateful for it. However, as a secular uh, amenity, what it would uh, do is, in an attempt to cultivate hope amongst the people who stayed there, it would put slogans up on the walls. And some of the slogans that were painted on the various walls in this this very fine uh, building establishment, some of the slogans were things like this. Have hope in hope. Hope never fails. Things along these lines. Is your hope in hope? I should be seeing a lot more heads going, no. No, my hope is not in hope. My hope is not in hope as an abstract thing, as some esoteric thing that is floating around out there. My hope is not in hope, in the existence of hope. My hope is in Christ. My hope is in God. My hope is that there is one who is bigger than I, who can deal with the problems before me, who can deal with cancer and sickness and illness and all these things. When we were at the Ronald McDonald House, what did we do? We prayed. We didn't pray to hope. We prayed to the God, the God who is hope. The God of heaven and earth. And we said, God, 
Help us deal with this issue. Help us overcome. Lay before us a smooth path. I would have lost heart unless I had believed. That's what David said. That's what we said. The obstacles in your life will swallow you whole unless you have this. Belief and a promise. Now, as we said earlier, it begs the question, what promise? What is David referring to? What did he believe in? Well, like Abraham before him, David believed God's promises, all of them. David took God at his word, and God credited it to him as righteousness, just as he did with Abraham. When God had promised that he would never leave, that he would not forsake his people, David believed it. When God promised that he would judge the wicked, that he would uphold the righteous, David believed it. When God promised that there would be a better tomorrow and life everlasting, David believed it. And that belief, that hope shored up his soul, gave strength to his bones. He could take another step because he believed. With that said, what would David whisper in our ears now, given what you and I are facing, given our obstacles? Let's look at our closing verse. Let's look at verse 14, where he kind of uh, sums up his, his exhortation in one verse. Okay, verse 14 says this. To you and I who are hurting, to you and I who have obstacles before us, it says, wait on the Lord and be of good courage. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Not may, not might. He shall strengthen your heart. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. He shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Two times in this verse. Remember, repetition is always a big deal when you see it in Scripture, especially when you see it in the Hebrew. Two times in verse 14, David tells us that the answer for the here and now, the answer to the question why, is just hold tight in time. And time will have our answers. But those answers might not be today. So for now, what do we do? We wait. Wait on the Lord. Now, I don't know about you. I'm not, I'm, uh, I'm not that good at waiting. I suspect many of us are not. This can be the hardest thing. This can be the, just the hardest thing in the world. If you have a great malady, a great sickness in your bones, and you go to the doctor, what are you really hoping he's going to do? Well, you're hoping he's going to pro- prescribe something and fix it. If the doctor was to to give you a slip that said, just wait, hold on, you'd say, oh, dear heavens, I'm going to go find another doctor is what we're going to say. What we see here is wait. And that can be difficult. That can be hard. And it's hard not just for you and I. It was hard for all the people of Scripture. Think of Moses. Moses is always my go-to example when it comes to this. Moses, how old was he when he left Egypt the first time? Forty, right. How long did he stay in Midian taking care of his father-in-law's sheep? How many years? Forty. So how old was he at the end of that? Eighty. Moses, the most important man of his generation, the one who who typified the Christ yet to come, the, the intercessor, the mediator, all these things. Moses, again, the most important man of his age. When he's 40 years old, God sends him out into into the wilderness, so to speak. And he spends 40 years tending his father-in-law's sheep. 
I don't know about you, but that sounds like one of the least desirable occupations you can have. Tending sheep is one thing, but tending your father-in-law's sheep, good golly. He did this for how long? Not just one year, not just five years. He did this for 40 years. Moses knew something about waiting. Moses knew something about waiting. In the book of Habakkuk, the very first verse of the entire uh, book of Habakkuk comes out of the heart of a prophet who is tired of waiting. The very first verse of the prophet's writing in this book says, O Lord, how long? O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Does this, does this not seem very similar to what we're reading in the psalmist? Now remember, these are good and godly men. And they had the same question that so many of you and I are asking today about our own issues. And that question is this. How long? How long? And Psalm 13, one of the earlier psalms than, than the one we're looking in today, uh, King David had asked the same question. He asked this in multiple psalms, just so you know. He says in Psalm 13, How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? If there's one question, if there's one question that God's people have always asked, if there's one question that rises up to heaven upon a chorus of, of millions of voices, it is this, how long? This is not a new question. This question is as old as time itself. From prophets to, to presidents, people have always wanted to know the seasons, the time frames of God. Because inevitably, man's seasons of joy have been too short and our seasons of pain have been interminable. At least so it seems. With that said, verse 14 tells us this. Just wait. Wait on the Lord. There's a number of verses that back up this concept. We see them in Isaiah. We see them in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 3. Ecclesiastes 3 tells us this. For everything, there's a season. For everything, there's a season. There's a time and a purpose for everything under heaven. Time for, for, for happiness. Time for joy. Time also for sorrow. There's a season appointed to what you're going through now. Why is it there? God only knows. But you know He's on His throne. You know He's good. And because of that, you can look at what's in your life and you can say, this didn't occur by accident. This is not coincidence and in a way I can't possibly understand that here now it is good not just for me but for others it takes faith to look at cancer to look at all manner of health difficulties relationship difficulties job difficulties financial difficulties and see God's glory and see God's grace in them it takes faith but that's what we're called to have. You know, even, even our most difficult seasons can bear great fruit if we're patient. So the question for us, you can imagine this question coming back to us from God, is this. Are you willing to endure something that you don't want for a time, for a short season, in order to secure, in order to attain something that you do want, which is eternal. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. A lot of times we do this simply by uh, waiting. In the midst of heartache, in the midst of pain. 
But we should know this, every last moment of our trial and our tribulation and our pain and our testing, it ultimately produces something that makes it worthwhile going through. You know, Paul, in Romans 5, he talks about this. Remember, he says, we actually glory in tribulations. We glory in tribulations knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance produces character. And character produces hope. God is a great refiner of souls. What does it take to, to, to refine um, a steel? It requires heat, fire. In order for that steel to be tempered. In order for that steel to be molded. You and I are oftentimes molded and changed using the very things that we would least likely choose for ourselves. But God can bring great, great good out of these things. For some of us this morning, it may seem like in the moment we're in God's waiting room. We've waited and we've waited and waited some more. And so our voice goes up, how long? It may seem that we're just internally in God's waiting room. We're in a holding pattern. We're in limbo. Fill in the blank. And we ask, how long can this possibly last? What I want to encourage you is this. If you've been waiting, if you've been asking God and have not received the answer that your heart desires, if you've been waiting, do not fall into the trap of thinking that God's promises unto you are just pipe dreams because you haven't attained them yet. Remember, God is faithful. He's not slack inserting his promises, at least in his timetable. God loves to validate the prayers of his saints. God loves to validate our faith. He loves to validate the wait. And one day asks us the question, was it not worth it? This morning, if there are things that are plaguing your dreams, things that are melting your heart, all of these things are under control by God that is capable of using the very worst situations to produce the very best outcomes. Believe it. On Calvary, the very worst thing that has ever happened, happened on Calvary. That was also the means for the very best thing that you and I have got going this morning, the salvation of our souls. And that event, that wait unto that event, only took 4,000 years since the fall. Whatever God has in store for you is coming on eagle's wings by comparison. Be encouraged by that. Whatever ounce of faith you have entrusted to your God, to your maker, he will validate in his time. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? That for now, we wait expectantly. We wait, we ask God for the courage to face today and for the faith to look ahead to tomorrow. Let's pray. This has been a sermon by Pastor Toby Holt of Christ Presbyterian Church in Marietta, Georgia. If you would like to hear other sermons by Pastor Holt, please visit our website at www.christpca.org or you can find us on sermonaudio.com.